This is Glenn Crooks on frame. ABC averaged 1.14 million viewers for the MLS Cup final this season between New York City FC and the Portland Timbers. Uh, That was up by over 13,000 viewers from the 2020 final, which was on Fox. And what you might look at as a whopping 38% increase uh, from the 2019 game, which was also on uh, ABC. So sounds like good news ahead of this uh, next TV and media agreement. But how good? So I've got someone here who uh, follows these things very closely and all media rights type stuff. Uh, his name is Daniel Cohen. He's the senior vice president of Octagon in their media rights and consulting division on the global level. So he's got it all. We're going to stay domestic at the start of this first. Daniel, how are you? Nice to meet you. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So let me ask you right off the bat. So the current MLS uh, media rights package is $90 million, ESPN, Fox, and Univision. So there's all kinds of numbers being thrown out. up to even 300 million. You see in some reports that saying, you know, MLS won't accept anything under $300 million, which seems unfathomable to me, but where do you stand with all this uh, as an introduction? Well, I think the first thing you have to look at is the package itself is, is incredibly different from the last time they, they went to market seven years ago. Uh, you have to look at the fact that there's, there's some real headwinds here but there's also some tremendous tailwinds. So when you look at the package, Glenn, the first thing you look at is what rights are on offer and how is the content performed? The rights on offer, you alluded to the fact that it was a $90 million package before. It's not a $90 million package today. Half of the rights value sat in the national team package of media rights, which are no longer part of this package. Oh, right? that was the, uh, with some, the, the relationship with some that's no longer existing? Exactly. Okay. So U.S. soccer has made the decision. They're going to part ways with some. They're going to take their rights to market themselves. And they're also in the market right now selling uh, against MLS. So that'll be interesting to see how that all plays out as well. But that $90 million is roughly about half of it. You talk to different people, they'll tell you 60%, 40% of the value. But for And you never really know, right? Those figures never get disclosed, do they? They don't, no. You, you can, you can, you know, in our business, we could pretty quickly get to a, a fair market value of the two separate packages. But for the intent and purpose of just having a friendly chat today, let's say it's, it's half, right? So, so the MLS package is actually worth $45 million, call it $50 million just to round up. So that's one thing you have to look at is the, the rights on offer this time around are, are very different from a value proposition on having a national team package and a club competition package. And that might be a headwind. Now, for the tailwind perspective, you've got a lot of additional content that's being offered this time around. And what I mean by that is primarily the, uh, the League's Cup. And that is what CONCACAF, together with some, is trying to plug in as a replacement value for the national team rights. It's that one month, starting in 2023, you're going to have a one-month tournament where both Liga MX Major League Soccer take a pause in their respective domestic leagues and play a 48-team competition, brand new competition. And as we all know, and we'll get into, I'm sure, later, there's a tremendous value in having Mexican football clubs on, uh, on MLS's TV rights package. 
Well, give us the specifics on that. Let's stick with it while we're talking about it. Uh, and again, we're with uh, Dan Cohen uh, from Octagon uh, Talking Media Rights. We're focusing on MLS right now because they've got this. Uh, well, well, first, let when will the new package go into effect? So they, they've, they've got to go into effect pretty quickly after this after this season. The rights are up. So they've got to, uh, when I say they, Major League Soccer, they're, they're, I have to assume they're in the ninth inning of closing this media rights deal. We don't represent Major League Soccer on the media rights side. We're, we do a lot of brand partnerships with them. So I can't uh, pretend to know exactly where they are in the, in the length of their negotiations. But my guess is within the next four weeks, six weeks at most, they're going to announce these new partnerships or this new partnership with a broadcaster and platform. Wow. And uh, the do you have any insight as to uh, what kind of figures are being uh, bounced around and like you said it's it's much different this time around and and you uh, you talked about it as a headwind because it's not including this uh, this bundle so the number that we see is not real 90 million is not real but whatever figure they come up with is going to be real it'll be all mls right yeah i mean you you have to if i'm major league soccer i walk out feeling really good if i've if i've climbed over this optical mountain of a $200 million a year average annual value rights fee. If I walk out and I'm able to tell my owners that are now valuing clubs north of $300 million, some clubs now getting valued at $500 million. If I'm walking out of those negotiations with ESPN, Fox, Amazon, CBS, et cetera, and I have a 200 plus million dollar AAV, I've done really well. So the, uh, the figure what, what would you accept as, as a, a figure? Because I, I, I'm thinking double would be amazing. Uh, when uh, we were first discussing this topic, it was probably a year ago or sometime during the pandemic with uh, Corey Left from uh, John Wall Street, who, who uh, has helped uh, coordinate this uh, little conversation that we're having. And it was like, well, $150 million. I mean, that's, that would be amazing. Uh, because again, these lofty figures are being thrown out there. I mean, what's realistic? Can, can, do you have a feel for that? Well, th- that's that's the beauty of the of the business that we do, Glenn, is that it's art and it's science, right? The science of the value proposition that MLS brings to the table is not quite two hundred million dollars. If you're looking at strict empirical quantitative analysis, it's shy of that, probably around the hundred and fifty million dollar mark per year. But what you have to keep in mind is this is, is the art part. And when I say art, it's all the intangibles. It's the fact that at a 7% CAGR of cord cutting um, decline year over year, the only thing keeping the cable bundle together is sports. When you talk about how many rights are available in the marketplace right now for tier one content, MLS has moved up, maybe at the bottom of that totem pole, but they have moved up to a tier one property. They're gonna they're gonna provide 500 you know 500 plus regular season live games. You got 31 MLS playoff games. You got 1300 plus hours of live game content, and that's a, that's a it's a big volume play. Uh, I like what John is, is that. What puts you in tier one? The volume? No, or I, is or is tier one uh, the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, and uh, and NBA? It, it's the latter. It's, okay. it's the company that you keep. Uh, it's the brands that you attract. It's the attendance, which has been a major boon for MLS the last few years the, uh, that you can attract. It's the it's the broadcasters that promote you. And it's also the level of competition on the field and the stars that you have in 
in your league. Uh, so all of that said, you've got you've got to consider the fact that it's it, it, you know just go by the data. Data doesn't support a two hundred plus million dollar rights fee, but the but the the art part of it, and so what I mean by the art part is you got to consider the cable erosion and the importance of live tier one sports properties. You got to consider the fact that this property is still very much a growth property. John Skipper once said this was a futures play for ESPN in their last deal, right? He equated it to buying pork bellies. Um, MLS is continuing to grow, albeit maybe slower than some would like, um, but it is still growing. Uh, you've got to look at the ownership. If you look at what 30 years ago, uh, maybe you knew one or two or three of the owners. Now you've got titans of industry owning these teams. You know, the Wilfs buying Orlando, David Blitzer, Brian Smith buying Real Salt Lake, uh, Wes Edens being touted as potentially a, a, an owner in Las Vegas. I mean, you're talking about real serious players, real serious money to invest back in the league and in the teams and then attract talent. We'll get to the salary cap issues in a little bit because that's pet peeve of mine with Major League Soccer. I think it's a, uh, I think it's blocking them from some huge international growth. But that aside, these folks want to spend and they own the Milwaukee Brewers. They uh, Milwaukee Bucks, excuse me, in West Edens. They own, gosh, what the Cleveland Indians, David Blitzer. I can we we don't have all day for that. But these owners, the Wilfs, the Vikings, th there's a relationship value there for Fox and ESPN and Amazon and CBS uh, and NBC to have with these owners of other major sports properties. So when we talk about the art part of this, there's more than just the, the hard data of ad dollars and sub fees and um, you know, affiliate revenue. Well, the data, the data to me, and I, and I, and I think you've partially answered it anyway. It's, it's not just the ratings. Is that the data you're talking about? Yeah, where, exactly. is that, uh, where a modest increase would be expected because uh, the ratings are a little bit higher. Yes. All right. So, how about the uh, the demographics? What factor do they play? Uh, the uh, Gen Z or whatever gen you want to use. Uh, where does that come into play as far as uh, hitting the table and negotiating this thing? It plays a big factor. And I think that they've done well. Uh, my dear friend over there, Seth Bacon, who runs our media rights group, has and his team have done a tremendous job at parsing through their fan demographics to, to pitch that story. Because I think it's a really important story. I think the fact that the average fan of, a major, of, of MLS being under 40 years old, they're one of the only major five leagues that can claim that. The NBA is next at basically 42 years of age. Uh, when you talk about Gen Z and millennial fandom, almost 60% of MLS fans are Gen Z and millennial fans. The next closest, again, the NBA at 50%. When you talk about the digital nativeness of Major League Soccer fandom, they're well above 40%. They're the only league in the big five that can claim that. And then I think the other part you have to talk about, not just age, is, uh, is the cultural element, right? Hispanic fan base of MLS is massively important. They are double that of the next league in the U.S., which would be the NBA at 16%. So I think you've got a, got a cultural, racial, ethnic play there. You've got um, a, uh, an age play there. That really does set you apart from the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, and Major League Baseball. When the the ratings are taken into consideration, Daniel, and we're with Daniel Cohen from uh, Octagon, uh, talking media rights. The uh, mobile devices, all these uh, outside of cable, 
are those things taken into consideration and factored in? And if so, how, how? Yeah, they are factored in and they're becoming even more important than ever before. Uh, I've been doing this for, for quite some time. And I can tell you that we have had to shift our modeling and become much more sophisticated when it, when looking at digital consumption and also looking at social engagement, because these are factors that do drive value for the networks. And as these networks shift to more digital uh, distribution models, that data becomes even more important. And one of the things that MLS, again, in the marketplace today is doing a nice job of touting is just how, <clears throat> just how much they've grown their digital engagement, both on website and on social. Uh, it's, it's really been incredible uh, when you compare it to where they were just five years ago. Do they figure they've got the young techies? So that's uh, part of the deal? Yeah, very much so. And I think soccer as a whole, it's funny to say soccer when 90% of my day I call it football. Soccer as a whole in the U.S. is definitely the most uh, digitally diverse fan group of any sport out there. And that's why you saw Bleacher Report under Turner not too long ago make that first dive into the Champions League and acquire those rights uh, because they were they were a first mover in the sense of saying, we're going to go direct to consumer with Bleacher Report Live. Also shows you how quickly times change when that product doesn't even exist anymore. Um, we're going to go direct because we know that soccer fans will pay up for streaming services. And we know that soccer fans are comfortable streaming soccer content. And that's why you see CBS making a huge push into soccer right now to really pump full their Paramount Plus offering. That's why you saw NBC just renew at a big clip the Premier League because they're going to pump Peacock full of that content. So I think you're going to continue to see this trend of soccer being a digitally, um, a digitally powerful um, sector of sport for any of these legacy media companies making that transition into streaming. These paywalls, uh, do you see uh, any negative aspect to that in terms of negotiations? Sure. Yeah, I do. I, I think that a, a paywall for a league that is in it still, I know it's 30 plus years, but still in its growth um, can be problematic. Uh, we're seeing it with the NHL, right? The NHL is kind of the canary in the coal mine that I think MLS should be watching because they just went off of... Uh, any free-to-air exposure by leaving NBC and going to ESPN and, and, uh, and Turner. So you look at something like the other week, right? The Winter Classic. Turner did extremely well in terms of uh, uh, how they produced the, the game and, and the actual game itself was fantastic. But it was also one of the lowest rating uh, Winter Classics in recent history. And that's because it moved to cable behind a paywall, right? The original paywall so to speak but now we're talking right, about right. The now we're talking about the streaming paywall not everybody has cable you know i've recognized that doing the commentary for new york city fc on the radio side where people have come up to me and said yeah i, I listened to you for all the road games because i don't have cable but you know and it's it's uh it makes me take a step back and understand that uh, sometimes that's a decision just outside of whether you have the means to do it, but it's, it's a combination of things. So to assume well, it is, uh, is ridiculous. Well, Glenn, my, my son and daughter don't have cable. I, I was just going to say to you, it was a decade ago. We were at a hundred million cable homes in America and we're now less than 70 million. So that it's a, it's a, it's a massive drop. Right. And, and even though, uh, 
cable is going to play a very important role and be around for a lot longer. I'm not one of these naysayers that's out there in Twitter shouting into this Twitter sphere that cable's dead. Um, <laughs> but, but I do think that it's important to note that, you know, based on our estimates at Octagon, we're projecting a 7% cable drop in cable subscriptions every year uh, through 2025. We see this bottoming out around 45 million cable homes. Uh, and that's a massive job. That's, that's greater than 50% in about 15 years. So I think that that is important to note that, um, that while that paywall is shrinking. Yeah. It's interesting though. So the leagues have to take notice of that. I mean, those are, uh, those, you know, that's part of uh, what you do for them is uh, make these predictions that they've got to look closely at those things. Daniel Cohen with us from Octagon. Let's, let's stick more a little bit with streaming versus cable. I mean, where, where are we headed? Yeah, at what point, Daniel? I mean, I sit here right where we're doing this interview from with the my iPad to the right of me and then and another computer to the left, and I've got Paramount Plus and 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 Peacock, you know, so I'm watching games all the time. And that's that's kind of the way I watch more than any other way now. And and I'm an old guy, and it took me a while to get used to it. I gotta tell you. <laughs> the good news is that uh it's unsustainable in the sense of all this fragmentation. There, there, there will be a continuation of choice. But at the same time, all of these streaming services, there's over, there's over 400 streaming services available in the U.S. right now. And when I say streaming services, SVOD, subscription video on demand, plus AVOD, advertising video on demand. So the difference between a Fox Tubi, which is AVOD, or a, a Pluto, CBS owned, which is AVOD, ad supported, similar to like, say, YouTube. You've got Netflix and the ESPN Pluses and the HBO Maxes and the Paramounts and the Peacocks, which are more of that, that SVOD model. There's going to be consolidation. Uh, there's, there has to be because the average household in the U.S. really can't afford to have more than five streaming services at a time. Right now, we're, we're hovering right around four. And we're seeing that from our internal research, we, we're, we're inching closer to an inflection point where the wallet in the U.S. household is getting pretty thin when spending on streaming services. So I think that that four, 4.5 numbers is going to be your average. Wow. And then I've, I've never added mine up. I know I'm well over four personally, but I'm sure it's not the typical household. But yeah, no, it's uh, I, I mentioned my children, but they don't have cable and they just uh, I think they probably wire into our stuff. I don't even know how to get it all. But, uh, you know, and, and they're and essentially they're not watching TV as much. So. To yeah. me, there's a bit of a healthy uh, factor here, too. You know, the fact that maybe you're just not stuck on the tube all day. You know, the average time consuming on television is is dropping. And the average time consuming on, on a laptop or on a phone is growing at three times that rate. And you see the advertising market follow that as well, Glenn. I think 2019 was the first year in which digital advertising surpassed that of linear television advertising in terms of total spend in the U.S., and that's only going to continue to go up and to the right in terms of digital advertising. So there's no turning back. Uh, the television is now, you know, there's more smart TVs sold in the U.S. this past year than there is the traditional um, coax cable type of television. So we know that that streaming is the future. We know that it's only going to continue to grow. Uh, but I think you're going to see consolidation in the amount of services you need to get all the content you want. Daniel, uh got a lot of friends in the industry that uh, are commentators uh, on these regional telecasts 
for Major League Soccer. And uh, the commissioner, Don Garber, put a freeze on that uh, until there's an agreement, which you say is probably pending, you know, a, m- a month or two uh, ahead of us now. What are the reasons? What, what are the benefits to MLS to not have these uh, regional telecasts with the local broadcasters, many of whom are part of that community and are important to the fabric of the team? Um, could you um, diagnose that a little bit for us? Sure. So I think there's there's two points I can hit on. The first being uh, just what does the regional sports broadcast look like, hopefully, in this next deal? Uh, and then the second is, is, is why. Why have they been included? So I'll start there. We talked at the top of the hour, Glenn, about the the headwinds, some headwinds and tailwinds, and we didn't get into the half a dozen on each. But one of the other um, tailwinds here that, that Don Garber has very astutely done with uh, with his team is they've thrown the kitchen sink out there. They've recognized that they need to do that due to some viewership growth challenges and and other factors and just where they sit in the pecking order. They're going after a lot of money that's been um, taken up by the SEC, the NFL media rights deal, Major League Baseball's media rights deal, uh, NHL, et cetera. So they needed to come to the market with a robust offering. And that's what they've done. So including the international rights, including the the, um, local in-market regional rights was, was really important, clever, and creative. Now, the second part, what does it look like? What do these regional rights look like as part of this next bundle? Um, I would be incredibly surprised if teams did not have the flexibility to still broadcast uh, over the air their regional sports uh, matches um, in this next deal. And I say that because let's all let's all be honest, right? The regional rights don't carry a lot of value today. There's just not a lot of tune in there. Right. Okay. So sure. these deals, these deals are mostly barter deals between the team and the local broadcaster, in which broadcaster covers production and they split some advertising inventory. Right. The teams need though that that big megaphone, that microphone of free to air, or or potentially a regional sports network distribution. Because two reasons. One, they need to be able to bundle in local sponsorship to those deals. Two, it's the biggest megaphone to drive fandom, local fandom. It's how you sell tickets. It's how you make people aware when the next game is. Um, It's a massive driver for local, not the national revenue that gets redistributed, but for local revenues, they need that. So if you're going to put every regional sports game behind an ESPN plus paywall, for example, I think that's going to be a a massive detriment to, to each local team. So I don't see that going away. Maybe they, maybe the streaming rights live with uh, a distributor uh, in this new broadcast national deal, but the local over the air rights uh, and local regional sports linear rights, um, some form of package or all those games still have to be controlled by the team. And with that, and I don't know if this is in your purview, the uh, the talent or the commentators within each of those. You know, I've read things where uh, the league or ESPN will provide a stable of announcers that will do all the games around the country. How do you understand it? I, I'm not too close to that part. All right, uh, but I, I, I as a, I'm putting on my fan hat now and taking off okay. my business hat. I don't like that. I don't really like that model. Uh, I know that that Commissioner Garber comes from the NFL. That's the NFL 
format. They're not the NFL, right? And they don't have these national um, personalities that I think yet can carry abroad. I'm not tuning in to, no offense, I think he's great, but I'm not tuning in to listen to Lexi Lawless, right? I'm I'm tuning in, though, to listen to Tony Romo for an NFL game. If I don't care about that game, I'll still tune in because I want to hear Jim Nance or I want to hear – um, Romo, Tony Romo, for example. Yeah. So and we're, and uh, we're conditioned. We're conditioned for that too, which you know that could be the argument on the MLS side. Well, yeah, eventually everyone will be conditioned like they have been in the NFL. And and Glenn, I think you're so right. And I also think that Major League Soccer doesn't have yet enough stardom within each team, and it's not deep enough for a national broadcaster to walk in spend that i mean i this is now going back 25 years when i worked for for on air talent these these guys and women they come in the the morning of they get a bunch of stat sheets right they're they're reading up they get some press notes and like off we're on the air i don't think that works for major league soccer i think at this point you need someone who is with the team knows the team knows the knows the players knows the storylines that they can create because they're not going to be found on a quick wiki uh, and, and so I think you still need that local talent that follows this team day in and day out to create that compelling content. Daniel Cohen is the senior vice president of Octagon, a global media rights uh, consulting division. And he's our guest here on frame. You can follow him at another Dan Cohen. That's funny. So you're not the only one. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I think, I, I think, I think I've only met like 500 other Dan Cohen's. <laughs> All right, but this one understands media rights. How about this minor league component now with MLS? MLS Next Pro, and part of what I've read is they're, uh, they're certainly emphasizing and strongly suggesting that the teams do some storytelling, and, and, they, and they want some broadcast. They, they want, it sounds like they want uh, live streaming of these games too. Does that factor in at all with the contract? It does because it provides volume. It's another it's another volume uh, contributor, which is important here, especially for streaming services that have unlimited windows, right? So it's really important from a volume perspective. But if, but in all honesty, I think that the the number one value driver for creating this minor league, if you will, is to consolidate the U.S. club soccer space. Like, in my opinion, this is a direct. Uh, response to the rise of the USL over the last decade. And this is Don Garber and, and, and others saying, okay, how do we consolidate and drive major league soccer, the whole value chain when it comes to club competition in the U S so while there is value from a volume play for broadcasters, I think from a structural perspective of U S club soccer, that it's more important to get that aligned uh, and that's and that's really the driver here. Then it is, you know, Fox and ESPN are not they're not paying up incremental dollars to get minor league soccer on there. It just listen, the G League, um, uh, minor league baseball. It, we're just we as U.S. consumers of sport don't really tune in too much to minor. <clears throat> we attend, but we don't really tune in on broadcast or streaming too much to minor league sports in the U.S. So I think the real first value here is consolidating club soccer in the U.S. under MLS. Dan, how much do other sports factor in whatever this final 
uh, figure is going to be for MLS when they uh, they sign this uh, media rights package. But other sports uh, within the context of these other networks, how much does that play a role in what this final figure will be and the timing of maybe of what their deals are? Yeah, I, it, it plays a massive role, right? You talk a lot about it's a lot of powder analogies in our business, right? Dry powder, how much powder is left. Um, and when, when I hear people talk about it, just how much money is left, it's a lot, you know, that's the truth. That's what we're talking about. Uh, and the system has been sucked of a lot of that. And COVID has not made it easier, right? Every business has suffered because of COVID. I don't care if that business is in, um, in healthcare, in, in airlines, or in media and sport. Every business has been impacted. So if you, if you couple the, the, the impact of the pandemic on the media e- ecosystem, accelerating cord cutting, more dollars being sucked out of that, broadcasters have less to spend. And then you look at the fact that over $110 billion just got sucked out of the market with the NFL rights going. Uh, Major League Baseball just saw a nice uptick, even with ESPN leaving some on the table, they'll see close to a 20% increase uh, for all their packages. Uh, And then you've got the SEC going from 65 million to 300 plus million and going over to ESPN and leaving CBS. NHL just saw a really nice increase going to Turner uh, and, and ESPN. And so there's, there's a lot of, uh, as I alluded to before, the wallet for the American consumer is, is getting thin. Same on the broadcast side. You need to be a lot. You've heard Brian Roberts at Comcast say this two earnings call ago. We need to be more selective about the sports rights that we acquire. Wow. Um, and, so, and so that is, that is important. That'll to, resonate in the community, I would imagine. Yeah, that absolutely does. So uh, before I let you go, Daniel, if we can uh, hit on a couple of other things. Uh, when I first uh, got a hold of you, um, I sent you a little link to a story. I'm, I don't, I don't understand uh, some of the uh, the business, especially when it starts. When I see billions of dollars, it's like it, it's it's almost scary to me. But this uh, CVC Capital Partners, as we look at a a, a more global uh, part of this, and La Liga, a league. So uh, they've come into an agreement with the league. Uh, they call it Boost La Liga. So there's a lot of different components. But one I saw, which was interesting, is that part of the agreement is that this uh, CVC gets a 10% share of the television revenue. Yep. So this is, uh, pre- and, and there's a whole, you know, there's, there, there's all kinds of things. Restaurants being opened under the names of the, cl- I, 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 it was like, uh, really uh, fascinating to me. It, it's very fascinating. In, it is the next, one of the next major transformations of professional sport in, uh, across the world. Uh, the, uh, the investment into it at the, uh, at the PE level, at the institutional level. And also when I say institutional, I mean at the league level too. Right. It, it was becoming common that high net worth individuals for a very long time would buy professional soccer teams, professional sports teams. Then it started to shift into um, private equity funds, buying pieces of teams over the last few years. And now leagues at the institutional level are taking institutional capital. And I think that the story is yet to be written on how that will impact both good and bad professional sports. But um 
and I know for one, I'm, I'm certainly excited to see it. We work with a lot of PE funds actually on some of the deals you read in the, in, on the European football front. Uh, and I think that it, it, will, it will benefit in the short term, certainly in securing capital and securing the growth plans that were put into place before the pandemic. But I think long-term, listen, these PE funds are not in the business of holding long-term and they're also not in the business of looking at like three, four, five percent growth uh, returns. Uh, they they want to see their twenty plus, fifty times uh, exits, and so I think that's going to be the the interesting part is how much influence will these PE funds have in changing the core fabric of professional football? And what's the biggest benefit to the clubs because? Uh, there's first and second division involved. 37 of the 42 clubs have agreed to this. So apparently the five, including uh, Madrid and Barcelona, you'll want no part of it because they survive on their own. Apparently, Yeah. The biggest boost to the clubs uh, is, well, first you, you have to look at how is the capital going to be redistributed to the clubs, assuming that it gets redistributed in a way in which the teams can operate pre pandemic, uh, then it's going to be a, a huge boon they're going to be able to sign. I mean, the first thing, the club's number one cost line item is uh, player talent. Right. And so even though FIFA is trying to do their part in cracking down on some of that, especially with some of the changes in the agency business, you're still going to see teams go out and spend a tremendous amount on players. Uh, so I think that's number one. I think it's also, if it's done well, when I say it, the redistribution of this capital, I think it's going to introduce greater parity in the leagues. It should, let me put it that way, Glenn, it should introduce greater parity. Uh, let's use the French league as an example. The French league has one, has a super team, one of the best teams in the world, if not the best team in the world in Paris Saint-Germain. Um, but can you, Glenn, can you name me four other teams in the, in the French league? And you're a, you're a fan of the game, a student of the game, professor of the game. That's, a, that, that's an issue. Uh, you need greater parity. Going back to MLS, for example, uh, that is one area that MLS has done really well. MLS has had, I think, 10 different champions in the last 15 years. That's, that's, that makes the league more compelling. And so I, I would hope that this new capital gets redistributed in a way in which St. Etienne in the French league can become a little bit more competitive with the likes of PSG and Lyon and Marseille, et cetera. Um, oh, you don't, go ahead. No, I, 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 you brought up MLS again and I'm thinking, and you had mentioned salary cap earlier, which uh, has an impact obviously on who you can bring in, uh, in, in MLS. But this parity, which you just praised and is part of the uh, attractiveness of the league, uh, without a, a strict salary cap, then it's the uh, it's the big spenders maybe getting more talent in. And then now all of a sudden you have this unbalance uh, in a league that at one time was, um, you know, very equal. I mean, you see it at the end of, you know, going yeah. to the playoffs. There's not many points separating uh, the teams that get to the postseason. But, but see, I think Major League Baseball has done, done it the best. I think Major League Baseball has proven out a model. Now, you've, you've got different reasons why it works for baseball. We won't get into the legal issues there. But uh, I think Major, Major League Soccer has now reached a point in their growth 
where that salary cap should be tripled, if not quadrupled. You have owners who can afford it. You have owners who you have enough owners where seven or eight of these teams, similar to the Premier League, right? You've got like seven or eight global brands in the Premier League. Now, maybe even more with Newcastle coming on board. Uh, you've, you've, you, you can do that now in Major League Soccer where you can afford to have a soft cap, expand that cap. You want to go over it and pay, pay your, your fines, Dodgers, Red Sox, Yankees? Sure. Right. <laughs> it gets redistributed again. But you need to first raise it by a lot in Major League Soccer. And then you put a soft cap on it where if you've got sovereign wealth funds coming into Major League Soccer, then and they want to outspend, they will. But then that above that third, certain threshold, that that additional tax gets redistributed to the lower lower teams. Um, it works. It works. That's why the Miami Marlins, uh, the Oakland A's can be competitive in and uh, and reach the playoffs uh, against the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Red Sox. So that's where Major League Soccer has to go, in my opinion, in terms of a salary cap. They, they need to get more top tier talent. U.S. sports fans in general no question asked. They want to watch the best talent in the world. Yeah, and, and that's but, the, that's the debate sometimes with New York City FC, the the club I uh, cover um, amongst us. We we talk about do they need to to bring a David Villa, that ilk of a player, Andrea Pirlo, Frank Lampard. Well, they won an MLS Cup with a fairly anonymous squad. You know, you like you just said, if you go to other cities and ask, uh, you know, name the New York City starting lineup, they're not going to be able to do it because they don't they aren't these marquee names but you're also talking about television viewership so you've got this balance here so uh, uh you're probably suggesting here that don garber is going to the negotiation table with these networks and he doesn't have a full arsenal because of this salary cap and he doesn't have enough lorenzo insignes to uh to promote for the television networks well i think enough, en- enough is a it's enough is is up to Eric Shanks at Fox and and Jimmy Pitaro at, at ESPN to determine what is enough. Um, I personally, as a fan of Major League Soccer, as a fan of the game, I want to see MLS continue to grow. Uh, and I think one of the one of the biggest challenges to its growth is is being able to afford to attract the best talent in the world. And, I, and again, I'll just go back and say that it will only drive media rights revenues further for Major League Soccer when they can have some of the top talent in the world play for more than just one or two or three teams per year. And what when this contract gets signed, uh, how many years do you anticipate it? being four, five years? Is it seven like the previous one? Will it be uh, somehow lessened? Does the World Cup in 26 have any impact uh, in terms of the number of years? Yeah, I, well, just I, I, I'll double check it, but I think the last deal was actually eight years. Um, but I, I could be wrong. But uh, this next deal, I think you want to see Well, you know that you're going to go through 2026. Right. So at a minimum, it's got to be a five year contract. And if I'm a broadcaster, I want to ride the that exit velocity out of right. the world. Cup. So at least I want to have a six year media rights deal 
in the books banked. And if I'm major league soccer, that's probably where I'd want to end up somewhere between six and eight years. The media landscape is changing so rapidly. I don't want to enter into some 10, 12, or even 15 year contract. Um, I also need to see where streaming really does. A lot of this content is going to be streamed in this next deal. Look at the NHL deal again, as an example, the majority 90% plus of the content of the NHL is now on streaming service. MLS is most likely going to follow a similar model. I need to make sure that my audience can still tune in right six years from now. So I don't want to lock myself into something that is uh, unproven yet to make sure that this, this uh, streaming audience can access my, that streaming is in fact going to be as big in terms of audience delivery as, as we all expect it to be. Hey, watching a game on a phone is rough, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, how about fan engagement? Uh, I, this uh, and bringing in a different sport and bringing in the uh, national championship game in college football. Uh, if this is on the podcast and it's certainly people can't see that I'm wearing my Georgia hat as a, as an alum. So uh, national championship for my school beating Bama, which is even better. Heck <laughs> I, don't what, I don't know what's better winning the title or just beating Bama, but you know, that's uh, either way it's good, but they did this uh, thing they called Twitter tribune in, 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 in association with ESPN where fans could almost write stories during the course of the broadcast and post broadcast post game to, to engage. I, I, are there anything, anything that you have ideas of, or you've heard where uh, taking it back to soccer and MLS, where the fans could get a little bit more engaged with the, with what's going on? Because I, again, I think you have the kind of audience that would uh, be attracted to that. Oh my gosh. The, the list is endless. Glenn, and what you can do nowadays between Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, uh, even even uh, technologies that allow you to social cast and have a watch party with your friends, betting. We didn't even talk about that yet. I think we're 40 plus 50 minutes into this chat. We haven't even talked about how valuable the betting rights to MLS will be and how that plays a role. But betting interactivity, the... Uh, the interact the social interaction of live game consumption is going to become an increasingly important element to the value of media rights. And it's Can you going give us to- an example of how you might do it. I mean, if you yeah, were, sure, uh- I think I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll stay in the domestic club soccer world. Talk about a client of mine, national women's soccer league. I think they're one of the most progressive leagues out there when it comes to the, the techno technology they infuse into some of their broadcasts. Their partnership with Twitch is fantastic. I mean, it's so cool that you can, you, they call it Twitchifying, right? But you can earn additional tokens by interacting with the live stream. Those tokens then can be used for an array of things to literally purchase on Twitch. Uh, the cartoonization, the animation, uh, what Nickelodeon and CBS are doing with the slime bucket next weekend for the wild card games for the I've NFL. I've seen that once. Yeah, wait, that, I, they've done that before. It was great. Twitch, it's fantastic. And Twitch has been doing that with the National Women's Soccer League for a few years now. Uh, and I think, you know, alternative broadcast, having that customization element that you can say, okay, I want to watch Hannah Storm and Andrea Kramer uh, commentate on this NFL game on Amazon, or I want to watch, 
some folks with a British accent, or I want to watch the main broadcast. You know, there's, there's I'll tell you, if it's the NFL, I want to watch Eli and Peyton Manning just talking about the game while I'm watching it. I did that once. I couldn't believe how great it was. It's it fantastic. Was fantastic. Yeah. Man, Manning cast is, is a great, great uh, addition to that, that tri cast element that ESPN's rolled out with ABC. I think that, uh, but getting back to the NWSL, I think you can look at, at their Twitch distribution as a, uh, an engagement factor that really not a lot of other leagues have tapped into yet. Well, that's excellent. Daniel, uh, Daniel Cohen, he is the senior vice president of Octagon, a global media rights uh, consulting division. And that's what we've been talking about throughout this uh, podcast. And, and Daniel, I, I really appreciate you sharing all this uh, really informative. The uh, whoever gets to listen to this or, or read the Q&A when I put it up on my blog, uh, they're going to uh, benefit from uh, having a, a greater understanding of what's going on out there. So uh, good luck. And uh, I, I do want to check back with you periodically just to see what the hell is going on. <laughs> so. It's crazy, right? It's changing every day. That's why I love my job. It, 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 nothing is uh, is constant. But just to review, you think in uh, you, I think you said four to six weeks, you said MLS ninth inning that there's going to be an agreement pretty soon. Yeah, I think they have to. I think they absolutely have to because they've got to if, if if the big if if they decide to consolidate to one broadcaster or if they decide to swap out Fox with Turner or ESPN with CBS. You need enough lead up time to come up with that production plan, marketing plan, promotion plan. You need to go over your calendar. Uh, you've got a lot of work to do to get ready for that new media rights cycle to, to step in and go big in a big way. This is a massive pivotal moment for Major League Soccer. It reminds me of, of earlier in this century. Um, well, actually, I guess in the 90s, right? When, when you, you had the, uh, the World Cup here. Right. This this type of thing comes around twice in a generation when I say this thing, the World Cup, and you need to take advantage. This is your moment, Major League Soccer, to really take advantage of the World Cup coming to your shores, greater coordination with Liga MX. And uh, as they say, as Elon Musk says about uh, crypto coins, MLS to the moon. This is their this is their moment right now. That's Daniel Cohen, the senior vice president of Octagon, a global media rights consulting division. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.